0: Six-foot-four, African-American, heterosexual, cisgender, left-leaning, asthmatic, black, and proud, blurred, mama's boy, dad, and stand-up comedian, and I don't know if that fits in one tweet, but that's how this man with glasses describes himself in his new book, The Awkward Thoughts of W. Kamau Bell. In fact, that opening was just the subtitle, and a very subtle one at that. But even that ginormous title doesn't capture all the hats Kamau is currently wearing. He's a stand-up comedian, a podcast host, uh, I should say podcasts host, an activist, and a fancy TV show host as well. Currently in its second season, Kamau's CNN original series United Shades of America takes Kamau around the country as he attempts uncomfortable conversations that create change he's hung out with the kkk a very endearing hate group he's talked to the white supremacist richard spencer he's lived off the grid he's talked to inmates in prison visited standing rock and he's gone to the scariest place of all gentrified portland and here's with us today welcome kamau bell wow thank you we have time for the interview now that's incredible yeah, that was just me trying to read the... the t- that was just to make you feel amazing about yourself, and then you could just drop the mic and walk away. You're like, I have accomplished everything in life. I've survived Portland. If you can survive Portland, you can survive uh, this interview with me. Uh, I, I wanna get this, I want to get this out of the way because there's so much news out today, in the last three days in particular. We're so overwhelmed and I just feel like maybe it might be cathartic a cathartic exercise, so if you're willing to indulge me, I'll give you 15 seconds, I'll time it, uninterrupted stream of consciousness tell me what you think and what you feel when you hear me say President Donald Trump (laughs) I'm really enjoying the fact that I know he's having very miserable days the last few days, now as miserable See his tweets are like, "Oh, is it not going so good, for you, Donnie? Not so good right now." I'm, I'm taking uh, visceral pleasure for that, uh, while at the same time knowing that he, that I can't trust it just because he's having a bad few days. That this is ultimately going to lead to any good for our side. So, but I am taking some, it's, I'm taking some reality show, Real Housewives of Orange County, pleasure from watching rich people suffer. I, I love, I love. Uh, you said our side, and when you mean our side, how would you define that tribe or that side? Especially when it's uh, up against Donald Trump. You know, I think it's an evolving side. I think we're all sort of like working on what that side is. I think we're trying to, you know, the, the effort right now is to basically, if you look at Donald Trump and what he represents, and the people that he's put in his administration, and the people who support that, you have to sort of go. Well, I'm not for that. I'm for the opposite of that. And then we have to look. So you know, I'm for inclusion and uh, and representation, and you know, and, and science. We have to say that out for science. And then you have to sort of look around you and go, who's who on this side is for that? And I think a lot of times we get caught up in sort of the minutia of the. Well, you're not you're not for composting on Wednesdays. So I don't know if you can be on my, on my side. And I think we have to sort of get over a lot of that stuff and really just go, what are the big things that we all believe in, that we can all stand behind, that we can know that we're on the same side. Because if we, if we can look at the big things and the big picture, we way outnumber them. If it wasn't for the, you know, leftover slaveholder map, the electoral college, we, you know, we would be, we would feel like we were sort of winning right now, but we're not. Yeah, I mean, if, you, if you're for, I feel like it's it's Twilight Zone, right? If you're for clean water, if you're for with people with ovaries, <laughs> if you're for, you know... Not destroying uh, the climate, Uh, you know, if you're for tweets that are spelled correctly, not done in all caps, you you know, you're a rebel. It's it's an interesting time that we live in. If you're for the thing you said, if you're for the thing that says on the bottom of the Statue of Liberty, to be retired, you're poor, you're humble, massacring to be free, And you're sort of like leftist, (laughs) globalist, yeah, outlier. But you know, it's, it's, it's an interesting. It's, it, it's also an interesting schism with what's happening in America right now because we can't, we can't forget that 63 million Americans voted for him. And I know everyone says the Rust Belt, the Rust Belt, but people forget that it was about 54% white women and a lot of white, suburban, middle class, well-off folks who did not suffer in the 2008 crisis, economic uh, recession. And, and his words and his platform made them feel better. It made them feel great. And, and if you think about it, you know, their feeling of greatness comes at our expense. And how do we reconcile that 63 million of our fellow Americans feel this way? not oops or even people or even the husband of of a woman uh, who voted for Trump yes yes people were so you know people were so involved in their own little world like I got Netflix I got uh, I got my smartphone with all my apps on it and I think the people really weren't looking outside of themselves like said not even across the bed at their husband sometimes yeah literally Yeah, I mean, and and that just—I mean, I, I mean, Netflix is a very powerful draw. Come out to to you're you're asking a lot from Americans to go away from uh, twenty four hour streaming, uh, dear white people, Stranger Things. I don't know. Yes. I mean, you're asking a lot from us, yeah, but. Yeah, PTV is hurting the revolution. <laughs> yeah, Yeah, I mean, it, it, it couldn't be hilarious if there were only if we were back to like lack of cable and lack of streaming channels. Like maybe the world would be better. Like Netflix and YouTube is the downfall of a cohesive, pluralistic America. And can you blame it? Because there are some damn good shows right now. I mean, I, well, I mean, it's true. Like you know, I mean, I do this. You walk around the world and everybody's looking at their phone. You know, or like you know, everybody's curating their entire experience. And Google and. And even more so, like, you know, like we will we will make that even more immersive for you so you will have less to do. You won't have to you want you know, you don't have to ask for more directions anymore. I mean it's not like Google like we got. So, you know, as we sort of get this technology and I'm a fan of technology, but it's, it, you know, it further it, it, its first goal is to sort of please the user and then or at least make the user think they're being pleased. I understand that that so. though You know you, you mentioned that you know we it's not just we're living in the silos but it's, it's a filtered silo right it's like even our reality is filtered on Instagram and we live in these convenient bubbles and we don't pop those bubbles but here you are with your show and I'll give a shameless plug United Shades of America uh, trying to disrupt these bubbles and, 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 and you know sw- switching off these filters and trying to see people where they are and in particular you know it brings up some it, it brings it, it. disrupts some of these, these boundaries, right? Because you're reaching out and talking to people like Richard Spencer, who uh, is you know alt-right white supremacist. Um, and a lot of people appreciate you know, you're talking to the KKK and Richard Spencer, but other folks are saying there should be a hard line between trying to reach out and talk to folks who are my impressors, uh, or you're actually normalizing these people. Uh, you know, when you shouldn't be trying to win them over, you should be actively resisting them. You know, it's kind of like, what's the line between normalization, for lack of a better word, and reaching out to see if there's some, something better there? Right. And, 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 and for me, and this is just a very interesting, more knowledge. Yeah, you're a hugger. Yeah, and, and this is a concern uh, that you know many of the young progressive activists who, who siloed themselves and refused to engage. Uh, it, it's almost as if they let this stuff go unaired, unchallenged, and it gives the impression, like you said, that they're afraid to challenge it. And oftentimes, what seems it's almost like this it's 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 uh, a regulation of what's acceptable to say, who you can talk to and not talk to. But and and you know this as a comedian. Oftentimes, a lot of comedians are saying. One way to touch these third-rail topics, booby-trap them, is to engage them through satire and humor. But what's your take on th- this critique from many comedians who say, man, I can't even do this anymore because each time I, I even do this in my material, say on college campuses, I get shut down uh, or there's no, I hate using this word, but there's no safe space even for edgy comedy anymore to explore these issues. Weak- but do you think come out it does it weaken it because the uh, only thing i'm saying is if college campuses allegedly are supposed to be you know bastions of liberalism and also at the same time respect is is that where like edgy comedy goes to cash a lucrative paycheck so you can pay your mortgage or is that like it does it can edgy comedy survive and thrive in that environment you you think anymore and should it well I, yeah, I don't think you never did really I mean, I think comedy comes out of dark nightclubs late at night. I <laughs> comedy comes out of, like, you know, like the, like the, the, the comic seller in the village in New York City or the punchline in San Francisco or rooms or that aren't even comedy clubs. They think comedy comes out of dark spaces late at night where people are drinking alcohol. They don't come out of college campuses at noon. <laughs> you know, so I think we're, we're looking to the wrong places. Georgia Carlin for I think college campuses are about free speech so you're free to say what you want to say and somebody else is free to say the thing they want to say and you guys can engage back and forth. Now when that free speech starts to affect the safety of people on the campus and that's where you get to like my level of Richard Spencer, that's when the university goes, Man, we can You know, speaking about uh, comedians going and saying dark things sometimes and uncomfortable truths, uh, I, I know one of your uh, mentors, Chris Rock, he said something in an interview a few years ago that just stuck with me. And he said, progress in America is when white people become less crazy. He says we're just waiting. Like each time white people become less crazy, that's when like you know people are like oh maybe we shouldn't lynch black people or oh maybe you know KKK is a bad thing or maybe segregation is bad. So it's just like the rest of us are just waiting for the white majority to become less crazy. And you know, living, we talked about Trump and we're you know, we talked a little bit about what's happening in America right now. How much longer do we have to wait? Well, that- Especially who are on the left, or, the, or whatever that thing is called the like, left, think, well, you know, I'm not crazy, my friends are crazy, so I don't think things are as bad as I hear people say they are. And I go, look at Richard Spencer, ta da! <laughs> and then I go, the, the, the other thing I say about that, and white people, he's your fault. So you need to deal with Richard Spencer. The same way that Ben Carson is my fault, the same way that on some level Bill Cosby is my fault, that, you know, every black person in this country has had a Bill Cosby, Ben Carson, some point whether they wanted to or not but white people tend to avoid those discussions and I'm not sure it's true it happens with Muslims too every time a Muslim does something every Muslim has to take a side on what they think about that Muslim but white people tend to get away from that because they just get to be people and so part of one of my big jobs is the white people claim your people you know get your boy Richard Spencer Donald Trump Steve Bennett like these are your people and you're ignoring them and by you ignoring them and thinking things are fine they're making the rest of us crazy and, and, you know, you said, you know, that you're people, but I remember the first time we actually met, well, briefly, it was back in the Bay. We both have 510 area codes, which gives me joy. Uh, but it was 2008, and you had a one-man show, The W. Kamau Bell Curve, ending racism in about an hour, um, a comedic exploration of the current state of American raci- America's racism. And uh, I, my friend brought me to the show and said, I think you really dig this. And it, you know, I thought it would be a comedy show. It was a comedy show, but it was also very personal, and you were open and vulnerable. And at that time, I don't know if you remember this, but you were talking about who I think is now your wife, but your girlfriend, who uh, is from the white tribe. Uh, but you were, you know, you re- <laughs> you revealed, like you went to her house, and then just someone in her family just said something. Uh, that just broke your heart because here you are the six foot four black guy who kind of sticks out and you were navigating with the a- audience this this kind of tense relationship where you where your where your lady had your back but she was trying to introduce you as you know th- the guest who's coming to dinner. And you know yes, you, yes. and now you have biracial kids, right? And so you with that same member of the White two Yes, yes. And so it worked out. But I'm saying, is for you now, it's 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 deeply personal because not just oh, it's them. It's like these are your daughters, and you know your your extended family. You have to negotiate and navigate these conversations. So how has that, in any way, given you, perhaps a more nuanced perspective, made you more sensitive, or maybe it makes you more emotional? And it's a personal question. You can avoid it, but uh, I just think you're in a unique position to talk about that. Well, well, Black guy on stage talking about racism and white people and white supremacy, and you know, and then to suddenly fall in love with a white woman, which was not like, I had white friends, but I had friends who, you know, I had some of my best friends with white kids, my best white friends. But you know, so it wasn't like I was like, I'm not trying to a myself wasn't going from the nation of Islam, suddenly so fell in love with a white Christian. <laughs> talking about whiteness and white people and racism. Start dating my wife Melissa. Uh, and then we had you know, there was there was times in our family where things got super awkward and super weird and there was no way to run away from it because this was my girlfriend and we were in love and we were and we together. They're very smart of you. it's amazing it's training ground literally for what you're doing right now uh, it, it, you know disrupting these these kind of safe but toxic uh, bubbles and limitations of identity and representation and your book I mean you mentioned a lot about this and there's something that just stuck with me today because I don't know if you found out but Chris Cornell died uh, and Oh, no. Yeah, I know. I mean, and, I for, and for us, I mean, uh, you're a little bit older than me, but, you know, we grew up, and in your book, you talk about it. You know, Chris Cornell, Soundgarden, dead. Lane Staley, uh, Allison Chains, dead. Scott Oiland, dead. Kurt Cobain, Nirvana, dead. And, you know, and everyone's like, Eddie, Eddie Vedder, stay alive, brother. Stay alive, Eddie. Uh, <laughs> we need you. I kind of get a feeling that Eddie was never living as far a life as the rest of us <laughs> You know, but you know it's interesting because in your book, it's 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 about you know you mentioned Pearl Jam, right? Because as a black man, you're expected to be you're expected just to be down with hip hop and know everything, but you identified more say with Eddie Vedder and Pearl Jam, and, and it's interesting. Now, you know, I was trying to tie this together because Chris Cornell has died, and a lot of people might say, oh, a lot of folks who like grunge and are white are mourning, but I I just. Assumed just from reading what you what you wrote about Pearl Jam that for you a lot of people would not assume that a six foot four black man who's an activist and cares about you know progressive politics would like this is a, probably a big deal for you and 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 that. In- I mean, uh, what do you want to say? Uh, I mean, I don't know if you're going to articulate later, but uh, like, what is it about Soundgarden that really touched you and moved you about their music? You know, and uh, yeah, the soul, And I think you're right. The soul crying out, right? It was like it's it's edgy. It was dark, but then it was paired up with this this powerful vocals of Chris Cornell, these fantastic riffs, and it was just like I was just amazed they even went mainstream. And uh, now that you uh, you did yeah. that that audit of their career, I feel sad because like I just I'm processing, and I'm like I grew up with their music, and and you know I'm getting old, and yeah. Chris Cornell is dead. Yeah, I know. the Like a lot, being people, and you are know, like 52. Holy shit! <laughs> Not what? that all of it me. And you know, it's like another. I better pick a kill somebody this morning. Like it's another. It's, a, it's two different wake up calls here. Like a hero dies, and also it's a. It's open for the, you know, a. You know, a. You check your own self for like, am I still breathing? How am I gonna be here? Yeah. No. I. I. I've. I. Do you oh. have five more minutes? Because unfortunately. It's a, it's a good, it's a compliment, but uh, we got to good some good stuff, because I also want to talk about uh, your show real quick. But before I talk about your show, we're, I mean, it's essentially, it's, uh, you know, your love for Soundgarden, which is very sincere, personal, and pure, it's, it, it hits you. When it, when it comes to the black man, right, a lot of people will not assume that you would be moved... Uh, by Soundgarden because there is, is a specific representation uh, of the black male. Um, and your book and your comedy and your humor talks a lot about representation. In fact, I think I, uh, I outlined in your book, you said it's about representation. When you were talking about black bond, the fact that Elba might become bond and white people are freaking out. And you said something which, which many of us uh, have struggled with in the entertainment industry when it comes to storytelling is as people of color, we're apparently okay with the Godfather. Like I'm allowed to empathize with Al Pacino, even though I have no idea what he's saying in, in Sicilian. You know, but I, I get it, right? But but I'm sure you get this. Is every time we're in meetings, and probably less now. How can your ethnic story relate to the mainstream? Translation: How can your brown black story relate to the white mainstream? Who is somehow incapable? of appreciating non-white narratives. You know, dissect this for me and explain how, and I'm going to editorialize how poisonous this is on the impact of perceptions and representation. Well, it's, it, it, it's certainly a narrative that Hollywood has bought into for many, many years. But what happens is when you buy into that narrative, you don't, then you don't even work to challenge the narrative. Instead of going, like, you've been sort of going, if, if it is true, and i it's going that it's black, sell so, as much as white bodies Then the question should be, well how do we compare that? Nah, well, if, it is, if, it, is, if it, is, it is true but certainly we don't know if it's true because the sample sizes of black and brown representation on TV and film is so much smaller than white bodies in TV and film that we haven't worked at it as long and they haven't greenlit as much stuff and they haven't, they haven't tried to different things you know, Yes. Meanwhile. Yeah, ever. She had to bypass the system to be noticed by the system in a strange yes, way. And I, the thing that's good about that is when the system notices notice you, you can hold them up for more money. <laughs> you're not you anymore. You're not brand new. You're not like somebody who's like, oh, I'm so happy to be here. You're like, well, if this doesn't work out, I'll just go back to YouTube because those ad dollars are working out for me, you and know Yeah. So so know It seems they noticed you on your own terms. I mean, it seems that CNN is noticing you on your own terms and this is a manifestation of what I saw on stage eight to nine years ago. I mean, that must give you some, some joy and comfort. I think only uh, nerdy children of South Asian immigrants grow up saying they want a show on CNN, uh, talking about like spelling bees and how to be a doctor. Like, you know, I think we were allowed to be like, maybe we can be the next Sanjay Gupta, maybe, crossing our fingers. Yeah, that's it. You have to be a doctor or engineer on CNN. No, but speaking about the show and representation, the episode that's coming out this weekend, and and we're going to release this uh, interview hopefully on Monday, but you go uh, to the heart of the most popular minority in America, the one that everyone's talking about, the Muslims. You talk to the Muslims, and you go all the way to uh, Dearborn, where apparently Sharia has taken over and is forcing everyone to eat halal meat. And 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 you you get into it. I mean, you go to a halal butcher. You see them do their exotic halal butchering of meat, which somehow transforms it into uh, you know extremist uh, meat. Uh, And I mean, you went you went all in. And so, how was that? Like you going in eyes wide open, openly saying, "I'm going to ask you dumb questions. I hope you don't mind talking to actual living, breathing Muslims." uh, You know, what was your You first of all I'll tell you one thing, because you opened up the episode and you said something which just rocked my world. You're like, Growing up, you wanted to be Muslim because you thought we were cool. No one has ever thought I was cool in my life. That's insane to me. I was putting it together. Uh, And I kind of knew we need to thank President Trump for this when he said, you know, Obama talked about Muslim sports heroes, and he was like, and Trump tweeted out before he was president, what Muslim sports heroes? I don't know any Muslim sports heroes. And you know, we, it's interesting because some people thought we were cool, but now we're the threat. And I always, it's, it's, it's a dark joke, but it's like growing up, right, like the way the mainstream cheerleader always wanted to get back at her dad was date the black guy. And I'm like, dude, I missed out. I'm old now. Apparently, like the Muslim guy is the one that you date to rebel. And I told my wife, I'm like, you totally C-blocked me. You C-blocked my entire potential career as a Romeo. Yeah, she very sympathetic. But you know, you you've talked to Native Americans, African Americans, gentrified Portlandians. You've gone to Michigan, talked to Muslims. You're in the Bay Area with a very rich Muslim community. You you know you you've seen the diverse American Muslim experiences. As a black man and a chronicler of American history, if you had to audit my community right now, how would you say we as American Muslims are succeeding or messing up? Wow, that's a lot of pressure. Uh, I think succeeding. Oh, okay. Wow, I feel like there's no way to win this question. There's no way. None. I I i want you to think. I like, the thing the diversity of opinion about issues that America most are all on the same page about. Yeah. No, no, it's a lot of work to be done, but you uh are helping us do it uh with your show and your comedy. So uh I I appreciate you taking the time to talk to me. I went above my 30 minute mark because I was having too much fun, so I apologize to the world for taking uh W. Kamau Bell for 9 extra minutes. But uh, for those of you who are listening, watch the uh, W. Kamau Bell uh, W. Kamau Bell's show. On CNN, it's the show that he always wanted growing up, of course, as a young black kid who wanted to be a comedian, on CNN. Uh, the United Shades of America, it's season two. Uh, the recent episode takes him all the way to Michigan, where he talks to actually living, breathing, authentic Muslims. And his book just came out. It's very funny, very insightful. The Awkward Thoughts of W. Kamau Bell. And of course, he hosts multiple podcasts, and he does multiple stand-up gigs and speeches where he gets standing ovations from white audiences after calling them out on their <laughs> white privilege. And he's a lover of Soundgarden and comic books. He's a good dude. So thank you, De- uh, W. Kamabella for joining us for uh, Pen America's M Word series. I really appreciate it. Oh, and don't forget, I also have a podcast, politically reactive and very kind of I just want to shout that out too. And and the podcast. And and another really bright, smart uh, comedian doing great work, Harry Kondabalu, uh, Kondabalu on and that's for from the Intercept, correct? Uh yes, yeah, we're we're part of that same franchise. Awesome. Uh, anything else you want to plug? What did I forget? Annie has two cute kids. Never I guess pictures good. If you see 'em in the street, up. They love people, they like to take pictures. Yeah, like right, sir, thank you so much. Thanks for your time.